It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Ken is a nationally syndicated automotive journalist and photographer who's been in and around the industry for over 30 years. So tune in for your fill of automotive information and entertainment with your automotive ringmaster, Ken Chester. Hi, and welcome to another hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host, Ken Chester. If you're a first-time listener, let me show you around. You see, this program is not like your father's automotive show. We don't talk about nuts, bolts, transmission ratios, or how to get the most out of that pedestrian six-cylinder engine of yours. On the contrary, Roadworthy Drive is consumer-focused and tech-friendly. I explain the technology that's in your vehicle now and the new stuff that's coming soon. Likewise, I'm always ready to share the information you need to know today. The tips and the hints about car shopping, securing your financing, and what you need to know about insurance. So that way, I have you covered. Spend a little time with me right here each week, and you're going to be a better informed consumer and motorist. As always, I'm in studio with the usual suspects, known otherwise as the Roadworthy Drive crew. My friend and show executive producer, Jack, at the controls and our friendly tech queen and social media diva, Sasha, holding it down on mic two. Howdy, folks. Hi. Hello. Okay, uh, I'm taking the floor right now. You're taking the floor. I have bad news for you. Uh-huh. I have good news for you. What? Okay. what? okay. Number one, uh-huh. I had another meeting with the suits. <sighs> really? The suits understand and have heard your request from for new chairs. Yes. They want you to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's point number one. Uh, Sasha, point number two. Yes, yes, sir. Um, they really liked your idea mm. about going somewhere and touring a factory. Yes. Going somewhere. Okay. So they want us to come up with a budget mm. so that we can go do this. Uh, and they're, they want us to come up with a budget. Yep. Mm-hmm. I can do that. I can come up with a budget. Good luck with that. Mm. Okay. Go on. Before I get to rummaging around for news from the parts bin, I always want to hear from you, our listeners. Connecting with the show is easy. Call or text me on the Roadworthy Drive line. That number, 872-222-9793. It's good anytime, 24 hours a day. If email is your preference, my address is ken at roadworthydrive.com. Ask a question. Share an opinion. Suggest a show idea. It's all good. Now it's time to talk about what I found this week in the parts bin. This ought to be interesting. It ought to be. How about this one? Saudi Arabia considers going nuclear. Didn't we talk about that a while back? No, I don't think we talked about this particular one. Okay. Um, but we had a lot, what we had talked about was the fact that the United States was poised to overtake Saudi Arabia as the number two producer uh, in the world, only following Russia. Here's the thing. They might be the number two producer, but they're the world's largest exporter of crude oil, Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia is actually exploring the use of nuclear energy for its domestic energy consumption. It's part of its transition away from oil-based system. Who would have thunk it? A lot of people right now. Their, Their goal, according to the foreign minister, to save the oil and export it to generate revenue. In other words... We want to conserve a diminishing resource. Did you know, sir, that Saudi Arabia 
uses about a quarter of the oil that they pull out of the ground in, uh, domestically. No, I didn't know that. And that they're expecting a large increase in population and demand, but by their own admission, they don't expect that their oil production will keep pace. They want to build 16 nuclear power plants in the next 20 to 25 years Okay, at a cost of $80 billion. Okay, and they probably got the money to do it. Probably, but it's interesting to note that even Saudi Arabia is coming to see the light, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel with regards to crude oil production. Well, but I also begin to wonder at what point in time with all of this talk of of electric cars and different mobility options that are coming down the pipeline now, Mm. at what point in time is the United States going to have to go, guys, we're going to have to build another nuclear electric plant? I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Right now, the United States of America is the number one producer in the world of natural gas. Natural gas is the least polluting hydrocarbon that is that is available it's cleaner than coal it's cleaner than oil mm-hmm. um it's not as clean as electric but it's clean and the epa in the last 10 to 15 years has mandated pretty much that any new electric power plant would be natural gas fired okay. as they decommission the coal so we're getting cleaner but i think a bigger issue and we'll talk about that a little bit in the next segment is the fact that the current model of electricity generation and distribution in this country is on the verge of changing, partly because of a large, uh, complex lithium-ion battery installations, Mm -hmm. just like what uh, Elon Musk did in Western Australia. They were able to capture and save the the renewable energy Mm -hmm. and be able to put it into their grid as base power in a more predictable way because, of course, you get wind power when the wind is blowing. You get solar power when the sun is shining. But if it's not doing either and you still have electric need, that was a problem. Mm-hmm. The batteries came in and used a point that when the power was needed was being generated, it could store it and keep it till such a time when it was needed by the grid. And okay. I really think that we're, we're coming down to something like that in the future. But we'll talk a little bit about that. But on a related subject, American motorists are behind the electric vehicle curve. We've talked about that one before. Uh, no, we 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 talked around it, but we didn't really get into it. We didn't address it. We did long. not address it. No. Uh, recent surveys by the University of California at Davis. There have only been total ever 780,000 plug-in electrical vehicles sold in the United States. Okay, that number we've talked about before. Yeah, three-tenths of 1%. That's it. Um, That even people in California were not even aware of what was available and not even aware of the growing infrastructure for plugging these in. Even though Elon Musk is out in California building building this car, Mm -hmm. you're telling me Californians don't really know that this is an option for them. This lack of interest is evident in California with the sales of plug-in electrics accounted for less than 5% of new vehicle sales in 2017. Imagine that. They did five surveys over a three-year period. Mm -hmm. They found that consumers were no more aware of the growing electric car choices or infrastructure at the end of the surveys than they were at the beginning. California. It's not that they won't buy them. It's just that even with everything that, like, we talk about and others, 
it still hasn't hit the mainstream yet. The average person still is not aware. Well, and you have to wonder how soon it's going to be before they're going to start throwing a lot of advertising dollars at this, trying to create uh, an uptick in sales. Well, you would think that. You, you would think that. And I think that with all the automakers that are making a push towards electrics, and that's pretty much everybody, save for maybe Fiat Chrysler, but everybody <laughs> um, that is making a conscious financial investment, long-term effort towards substantial numbers of electric vehicles on the roads, that's coming. Okay, Sasha, you had a problem with what he said about Fiat Chrysler. <sighs> Doesn't no, she always? No, I, I agree. I agree with this very sad and heavy heart. I agree. Well, let me lighten your heart. Four driving skills for life for her. Remember we talked about women being able to drive in Saudi Arabia starting this June? Yes. We talked a, about that. a foundation funded by Ford Motor Company is actually pairing up with Ifat University in Saudi Arabia to help women make history uh, with teaching them driving skills. Does Ford sell over in Saudi? I believe they do. Okay. Ford, Ford is a global company. It's a customized inductory program led by certified trainers, which will help focus. It will focus on helping women build confidence behind the wheel by instilling safe driving practices on a closed course. And would you believe that's a four-day course? It's a four-day program. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's pretty interesting that they picked this particular university that uh, actually was started by uh, a prior queen of the kingdom back just before she died in 1999. I it's the no kingdom's idea. first private, nonprofit women's college. Has an amazing history. And couldn't think of a better place to do it. And they'll be doing that here uh, probably uh, in a few months, I believe, they'll be doing it. And it will train – oh, I'm sorry. It's happening right now. It will happen starting on Monday. Um, no. Again, I got my dates wrong. March 5th through 8th. They'll train 250 Ifat University students incorporating four modules of in-vehicle experiences. So you can't, you can't stop a woman. You can't hold her down, even in Saudi Arabia. When I return, we're going to handle a little unfinished business with regards to electric cars and the electricity grid. Because after all... I promise you're riding shotgun with Ken and Roeworthy Drive. You're listening to Roadworthy Drive. Great big engine murmuring low. Learn to go 
so make sure you see and drive the new DeSoto I Man Alive. It's delightful, it's delovely, it's delirious, it's the living, and it's the latest, it's the limit, it's deluxe, it's DeSoto. Tomorrow at your DeSoto dealers, see and drive the delightful, the lovely DeSoto for 1956. Yeah, it was so the lovely. It was discontinued in 1961. You know, I just love these old commercials. You know, yeah. you just want to get up, just kind of like boop. My, my personal favorite was the Studebaker Studebaker Lark. Yeah. 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 If you're just tuning in, this is Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. Thanks for dropping by. A few weeks ago, we were talking about electric cars and the impact on the electricity grid. I promised then that we would revisit the subject and complete the conversation. Well, that time is here, and I'm ready to delve in. But before I start that, this, this first piece that ties right into it is just for Sasha. And I start with this title. Teslas are finally replacing Porsches on the Autobahn. What? With a charging network five times more dense than America. Germany is poised to become the world's number three electric market. Well, okay. If you're talking about the price of a Tesla versus the price of a Porsche, Porsche, Porsche. then I can understand that. And also, Germans love their speed. Yeah. But but conventional wisdom would held that the Germans would be driving their Mercedes, their Porsches, and the BMWs. I think that they also are... Um, in tune with what's going to be in the future? Well, I think the diesel scandal had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they're giving up their diesels for a Porsche Model S. Uh, Me for a Tesla Model S? I said a Porsche Model S, didn't I? You did. Tesla, yeah. Got Porsche <laughs> on the mind. But have you seen a 911, though? <laughs> it is classic. It's iconic. It is, yes. But they're giving them up. Um, here's a question. Okay. What country leads the world? In electric vehicles. I'm going to say China. No, not yet. In electric vehicles? Yes. And it wasn't China? No. Japan? No. I have no idea. Norway. What? Norway. Norway. Norway is the leader in long in plug-in electric vehicles. And Reason? Government subsidies. Big that's time. That's right. That's right. Which makes, which makes sense, more sense now than ever before. Yeah. And I'm going somewhere with this. Um, the big issue that we talked about before, and you brought it up, Jack, mm-hmm. is the fact that with all these electric cars, you were worried of the the pressure on the electric grid. Correct. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of thought on that subject going forth. Uh, time of day pricing. Um, in fact, BMW did, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, did a test a 18-month test with Pacific Gas and Electric with BMW i3s in concentration. What they were able to do, and as far as the owners were concerned, didn't impact them at all. But what they were able to do is use these BMWs as, there was 100 of them, Mm -hmm. as a block to both offer power to the grid at high times when the grid needed more power Mm -hmm. and to recharge them at times when the grid had excess power. They used it as a load-balancing device, which helped them not to bring on what you call peaker plants, Mm -hmm. plants that they only run in high-demand situations, which you get into something what the uh, utilities call demand pricing, which they typically charge to large companies who have a large demand for electricity. 
at high demand times, mm -hmm. yeah, that can get expensive. Right now, the problem is the way that most utilities price their electricity makes it cost prohibitive for charging stations. In other words, they need to change the formula because to keep it easy, if these vehicles, if you have a number of vehicles on a fast charge during a high demand period, mm -hmm. then that charging station gets hit with demand pricing, which makes the cost unattractive and uh, not in balance, say, with cost of gasoline. Right. In order for this to work, they've te companies like Tesla and ChargePoint got to get the kilo. They got to get the cost of electricity down to nine cents a kilowatt hour, even in demand situations. And if the utility would take a different look, because the utility doesn't care where the electricity is being used. Okay. Uh, the big problem is the grid's not built out the same everywhere. No, that's true. So that's if true. you are in, say, a residential area that's got one load and maybe 15 people buy an electric car, well, you've just changed the load in that neighborhood. And it may be make it subject to demand pricing, where if you're in an industrial area, which is built out for this heavy workload, that it's more likely to take it and you're less subject to that kind of pricing. Okay, I want to take a sidestep for a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are utilities around here, mm -hmm. especially out, out in rural areas, mm -hmm. that if you actually have an all-electric house, I mean, your house is heated and cooled with electricity, everything in the house is electric. Mm -hmm. They will put you in a second meter that runs backwards. Okay. Yeah. That, will, that, will, that will tell them how much to take off your bill every month because you're using their electricity. Mm -hmm. And you get a rebate coming so you, back. You're saying with an electric car then? I'm not saying an electric house. Yeah. Okay. Well, why can't you take that same principle and apply it to an electric car? Uh, you can, because in the case of an electric car, in certain situations, the car would actually provide power back to the grid. And that's the whole argument that the electric charge companies and the electric car makers are making. But to go back to Germany for a minute and why Germany has five times more. The automakers are actually putting up the money to build the infrastructure. Okay. And they're continuing to do it. Now, Germany's got some weak spots throughout the country, particularly in East Germany. But they used, in the story, they used an example of a gal who drove her model, Tesla Model S from Oslo, Norway to a point in Germany and back. Mm-hmm. It's over 1,100 miles one way. Okay. No problems at all. Didn't have to plan for it. Didn't have to think about it. Charged up along the way, didn't interrupt her trip at all. Now well, I'm curious how much it cost her. Probably less than you think, but the argument that they had there is you had to have a different card because of the different utilities. In other words, one card couldn't get it all done. Okay, because I was about to ask you. I'm assuming that she has to pay when she stopped to charge her car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're telling me that she had to have a credit card or something to make this work? Some sort of card that gave her access. The problem is, she instead of one, excuse me, like our toll road example, right? Uh, she needed a number of them. Uh, wow. Their their words were a fistful. I don't know if that meant five, ten, three. No idea. Okay. But trust me, at the way they're installing these fast chargers, Germany's going to continue to get better, not less. Next up. Ride sharing is changing mobility in ways you've never imagined. It'll freak you out what I learned. This is Roadworthy Drive.
Roadworthy Drive is a cornerstone of the Roadworthy Drive radio network. Welcome to the downhill side of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your effervescent host, Ken Chester. For those of you that desire more than your fair share of the road, be sure to visit our website. That's roadworthydrive.com. Listen to audio clips of prior shows. Watch video of our behind-the-scenes antics in studio because we've got a lot of antics going on. Antics. Yes. While we are producing the show and find out what's really on our minds during the breaks, if you can handle it. The website is also a great place to find out what we are doing in the world of social media. Sasha is our fast and friendly diva of social media. She keeps things moving with her interesting and timely post of automotive tech and automobilia. See how she keeps the social in our social media. You will be glad you did. Automobilia? Automobilia. Can we say that ten times fast? No, I prefer not to. Let's talk about ride sharing. Let's talk about ride sharing. Um, We've discussed, often at length. The increasing impact of services like Uber, Lyft, and Maven in the Daily Dispatch. Mm -hmm. And there are even more. Are they good? Are they bad? There's a body of work that seems as conflicted as a thicket of weeds. I thought I would share the good, the bad, and the ugly and let you decide. Let's start with the good. Okay. Uber wants to get you to your doctor's appointment. Doctor's appointment, I don't mind so much as, you know, the ER. Yeah, hold that thought. We're going to deal with that well, in a minute. Well, I heard that in, in the run-up. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, okay, now we're actually using ambulances as Uber? Yeah. No. And I've got a lo- <laughs> I didn't yeah. think so. No. Yeah. But we'll get to that in a moment. But okay. like I said, let's start with the good part of this. Right, right. Uber has launched a new service called Uber Health uh, that will allow hospitals, clinics, nursing homes, and other healthcare organizations in order to schedule car rides for patients. The best part, Uber Health doesn't charge the driver. The hospitals and the doctor's offices pay for it. Really? Yeah. And here's why it matters. Okay, that would almost be like them validating your parking. Or like Joyride. Okay. And for those of you that have never heard that term, Joyride is a funded uh, organization that provides rides to elderly and other uh, handicapped people get to their doctor's appointments Correct. and things. So I wanted to explain that. Kids folks you. like, what is that? Um, Uber sees a large untapped market in the roughly 4 million people who skip or delay healthcare visits every year because they don't have reliable transportation. Hospitals, doctors, and other providers could be eager to pay for those rides, and it always boils down to money, Jack, for if it means more on-time appointments and fewer no-shows. Because it means it translates into more money in their pockets. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just start with that. Um, they feel that hospitals and other companies wouldn't mind spending 20 bucks or even a couple hundred dollars getting patients to and from appointments if it means those organizations can bill the much higher payments from Medicare, Medicaid, or the patient's commercial insurer for the actual visit. Okay, stop. Yeah. Our- is, Medic- is Medicare or the insurance companies going to pay the doctor to de- transport their patients? No. But if you've got an appointment 
mm-hmm. you keep the appointment, right, then the doctor can bill the insurance carrier. If you miss the appointment, that's lost revenue. Okay, I see what you're saying now. So what they're going to do is absorb that cost offset by the money because typically if you're in a situation, and I know Sasha wants to say something, but hold that thought, I'll get to you. If you're in a situation where you don't have reliable transportation, you're older or infirm, you're outside of uh, the typical service area mm-hmm. of what's available, right. uh, you don't have family members that are available to take you, then this could be a lot of help. Come on, Sasha. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I love how you say they're going to absorb this cost. And, I mean, I don't want to say that I'm looking into a crystal ball or something, but I'm just saying that I kind of foresee their office visits Maybe going up in price about ten to twenty dollars. I disagree. Well, you could disagree all you want. What, who do you think's absorbing the cost of a no show? The doctor. No. Okay, but is it a cost to them? Yes. Yes. Because they can't bill. They still have the overhead. He still has his time or her time. They're still there, and they're there supporting fewer patients. If you don't make your appointment, it's not like I can put somebody else in that appointment. Okay, but a lot of times, and I know with our doc, with our family doctor, if you miss an appointment, they will bill you. Yeah, but that doesn't happen everywhere. I'm just saying not all of them are absorbing. But that doesn't happen everywhere. Well, but again, like like Ken's saying, if this is a way to get people to their appointments, especially if you're elderly, infirmed, or in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a great idea. It is, but don't they have something that's like that out there now? They do, but if you're outside their service area ah, or yeah. timing, you're still up a creek. If if you're out where you live, right? I doubt that you know what Joyride is. Yes. Okay. I doubt that Joyride is going to come out and get you. We have what's called People's Ride. Okay. So and it. So it you won't... actually do have something out yeah. where you live. How, okay. However, subject to hours, scheduling, whatever. Right. It's true. So that's true. Let's let's flip the script. Now, that was the good news. Here's the bad news. Uh-oh. Ambulance usage drops as Uber popularity grows. Mm-hmm. That's a study. Really? The, tr- the trend yeah. was examined in 766 cities in 43 states where Uber began service from 2013 to 2015. Now, I'm sorry. I, I asked this really convenient question, and it was answered further in the piece. Um, I-, I just can't imagine a driver... As an independent contractor at Uber or Lyft, taking that responsibility for somebody who might even die in their car. Okay, but that what was if they say question. no and... They have the right to say no. But what if they do and that person dies while waiting for an ambulance? But not, this person not my is, not me- is not medically trained to deal with this. Yes, but this is a Sue Happy culture. Yeah, but well, are you going to bleed all over my car and I'm supposed to deal with that? I mean... No. The problem is that as an independent contractor, as Uber would like you to know about their drivers, and Lyft says the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, the company says, we tell the drivers, it's up to you. You can refuse to take a ride for any reason. Right. They say that. Mm -hmm. Some of the drivers interviewed said, we don't have guidance in a case where a person needs medical attention um, of whether or not we can. And in some cases... People don't find out until the person's in the rides arranged and they're going down the road. Take me to the ER. Whoops. And if they look in bad or they have an incident in the car, you don't have any medical training. No, you don't. And even if you did, 
you may still be liable if you choose to give it. Now, yeah. on the flip side, the study said that in some cities, an ambulance ride to the hospital could cost up to $1,000. Now, that's true. That against a $20 Uber ride? Well, but he, and particularly but he, but if you've got, if you've got a copay? Yeah. Hang on for a second. Yeah. As an Uber driver, I'm not trained. I'm already no. paying extra for my insurance. I don't really believe that my insurance company is ever going to cover me if somebody dies in my car and I get sued. No. But but getting sued, that's an open question. Are you liable? We'll we'll look into that some other time. Finally, automotive technology and recent legislation, yeah, it's a thing. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is heard exclusively on the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Want more than your share of the road? Be sure to check out Roadworthy Drive on Facebook. This is the last segment for this hour of Roadworthy Drive, and I am so glad you tuned in. I'm Ken Chester. Over the last three years or so, I've talked about how it would be legislation that would be the bottleneck in introducing most of the new advanced technology to motorists and America's highways and byways. So, how are the nation's legislators doing when it comes to driverless cars, connected cars, cybersecurity, and the like? I thought it was time to bring you up to date on what I know right now, and trust me, this is merely the beginning of a dialogue that needs to occur over the next 15 years. Longtime listeners may remember that we interviewed officials from the Iowa Department of Transportation last summer about their approach to all of this and more. And we chose Iowa because they were at the cusp of looking at driverless cars. Their laws in the books did not prohibit or allow uh, fully autonomous cars on their roadways. And as a state... Uh, the legislature had decided to invest or import the responsibility for this to the Iowa DOT. The Iowa DOT then appointed some people to tackle this subject. And I got the chance to talk to them at length about Iowa's approach, what they were thinking, and how they were going to deal with this. Um, since then, they've tiptoed into the water with what I call a democracy. A, a demonstration, a never mind, words, use your words, Sasha, uh, a demonstration or a project um, along 20 miles of interstate between Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. I was wondering how other states and, more importantly, our federal government was doing. So I dug around a little bit. And what did you find? Automated vehicle guidance could be issued early in the early summer, according to the Secretary of Transportation herself. Really? You're talking about this summer, 2018. Like a federal, yes. like across the... Well, not laws, though. Remember, we got to go back... guidelines. Over, well, we got to go back two years. All right. The original guidelines, and we talked about them extensively here, mm -hmm. issued by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. That was at different levels, correct? Right, but it was more than that. It talked about levels of autonomy, a whole bunch of other issues. But it was the government issuing guidelines because they could do that quicker to help the industry uh, 
congeal around a set of standards and to agree on a way forward. Okay. As opposed to rulemaking, which takes a lot longer. Now, last fall, they came out with what they considered that 2.0. Okay. Now, we have not read it. We have not looked at it. They're already talking about 3.0 this summer. So I'm going to hold off and wait till 3.0 comes out. But then again, NHTSA told us that that was going to be a living document. And don't assume that we put it out once and done. It was not a one and done. They said that with the first one. So we're going to end up having multiple versions of this as we go down the road. Well, this summer, this summer, it will be version three. And that's fine because what they're doing is they're taking all the knowledge that they're getting from the many different stakeholders, players, legislatures, and the like, and putting it in a document that the industry is using uh, as a guideline towards getting this thing done. Okay. Let's go back for just a second. We've talked about California. Mm-hmm. We've talked about New York State. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are we, more. And we, I, I realize that there's more, but I'm going to use those two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where are they at with with the rules, and how much rulemaking can they make before the feds actually say this is what we're going to do? Because it seems to me, guys, that. The federal government is lagging way behind where they need to be. Way behind. Let me quote. Okay. The new policy, I'm talking about the federal policy. All right. Known as AV 3.0 will for the first time specifically address the automated policy guidance, not just for cars, but trucking, rail, and mass transit. Okay. So they're finally going to cover the entire gamut then. Yes. Yeah, but still, it's still just... They left left out barges. (laughs) We did discuss the barges. It's a thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a thing. Especially on both rivers on our our borders. Yes. And have they actually addressed the flying cars yet? Not in here. No. I was curious because we talked about that, about who was going to (laughs) cover once it... But again, this is a living document. As the technology continues to evolve and mature, they will incorporate it. It's not necessarily, in my estimation, a bad thing that the feds are a little bit behind because things are changing so fast. Well, I understand things are changing fast, but if I'm if I'm California or I'm New York State and I'm and I'm passing all these rules and laws and the rest of the stuff concerning this subject, and then the federal government comes along and goes, uh, thanks for playing, but no. Well, but the thing is, they know this. Yeah. Let me jump to something. Okay. Indiana is trying to pass some laws. And I'm going to jump to the one thing he said um, that I thought was a point. And i got to find it right here. Uh, all we want to do is have some accountability for safety until the federal government steps in. Okay. They know that the federal government is going to step in. And as far as Indiana talking about getting ready for autonomous cars, yeah. And they said this. They want to create an environment in Indiana that attracts research and economic development within the autonomous vehicle industry. Uh, they want developers and researchers to modernize and prepare Indiana's highway infrastructure for the next generation of vehicles. And to that I say, let's start with uh, Interstate 65 from South Bend to Indianapolis. Let's spend some money there and actually build a decent interstate. Not that Ken's going to rant. Not, not that that was not a Ken 
And rant that was a moment. mini rant. And by the way, the following rant <laughs> and Chester's alone it does not reflect Sasha or me. Go on. Yeah, because you haven't traveled 65. Oh, yes, I have. It's Yeah, I won't. Yeah. No, Indiana. Take the money. Spend it on the roads. Starting with that one, which is heavy automotive traffic from the factories in Illinois to the plants in Indi- Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're doing it. Um, I don't disagree. The reason why the Department of Transportation is taking the lead with guidance, rulemaking takes years. Well, but aren't they going to have to, like, get moving here pretty quick? But that, or, or you're not going to make 2025? But, Jack, that's the whole point of the guidance, is to move the industry without having to work, wait for the rulemaking process. It's guidance, but it's guidance that says, you know, guys, you really want to sign in and, and sign up and get with the program. For example, the Society of Automotive Engineers is on board. Mm-hmm. These are the guys that make the technical rules for all the technical stuff. Right. They're with it. And, in fact, part of 2.0 or part, no, I'm sorry, part of the original plan, they codified a lot of what the SAE was doing. So more and more, more and more. So that wraps up, folks, this hour of Roadworthy Drive. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. See you later. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation. Thank you.